Welcome, welcome, bienvenue to Down the Line, an episode-by-episode episode review of the best TV drama series ever made, Secret Army. Hello, I'm Andy. And I'm AJ. And today we're talking about the third episode of Series 1, Radishes with Butter. Just to let you know that this episode was recorded at the height of summer, and the fan on my MacBook went crazy as a result of being in a much too hot room. So please forgive that. I hope it doesn't impair your enjoyment of the episode too much. But we are talking about radishes with butter. So, um, yeah, a bit of a disclaimer now, I think. We, um, of course, will try and cover the topics um, in this episode with um, as much uh, respect and sensitivity as possible. And you'll see those parts where our conversation becomes more serious. But at the same time, there is that conversation about this episode as a whole. And so we might then become, I don't know, more lightheartened in tone when we talk about the different scenes in this episode. But we just want to acknowledge that we, of course, we're coming at this with that sensitivity and respect with the subject matter. Yeah. Keeping it on a slightly, on a slightly sad tone, I suppose. Since we, since we last recorded, I found out that um, Maria Charles, who plays Aunt Louise, um, passed away a few days actually before we recorded our last episode and then lots of people will also be familiar with the passing of Terence Hardiman as well so such a, such sad news to lose such greats that we know and love from Secret Army. Yeah I mean, Terence was lovely it's it was quite a surprise to me because I don't know he's the sort of person you think would go on forever and like he was so easy to talk to. His wife also an actor Rowena Cooper, Cooper was really lovely as well um yeah so it's really sad of course known as the demon headmaster but in secret army he will forever be Major reinhardt hans dietrich reinhardt to give him his full name yeah and it was nice to see um so many tributes come in like on social yeah. media there was just you know hundreds and hundreds of people posting their memories of him or what shows they've seen him in and their thoughts and best wishes to the family and things yeah. so it's always um lovely to see and for maria charles as well the fact I love about Maria Charles is that she was a star of West End musical theatre and she actually created one of the roles in The Boyfriend. I forget which of the characters it was, but she originated one of the one of the key roles. And I think that's cool. And she did that for many years. But um, that's probably her biggest claim to fame. I could see on um, people posting um, clips of her on Twitter that she was remembered for some sitcoms that I personally hadn't heard of just for being younger. But people at my age, kind of 30s, will may have seen her in Bad Girls. So I was like, oh, she played that character in Bad Girls. Oh, really? Okay, I didn't know she was in that. So, That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. So uh, next time I rewatch that show, I'll uh, look out for her. So... Radishes with butter. Shall we start with our usual plot summary? Yes, please do. Go ahead, AJ. Curtis becomes involved in the fate of a Jewish family living in Brussels. He knows that if they don't leave soon, they will be deported. So he asks Lisa if Lifeline will help. Meanwhile, the money that Curtis brought with him to Belgium is recognised by the Germans as too accurate to be real. Kessler believes that the forgeries will leave them to the people behind the evasion line. Tell me about who wrote this episode and who directed. So this was written by 
Secret Army stalwart, main writer, in fact, John Brayson, and also script editor. He wrote more episodes than any other, didn't he, John Brayson? He absolutely did. Yes, he had that that firm hand on the tiller. I'm fairly sure I said that last episode, (laughs) but I've said it again because it's still true. We'll add it to the uh, the down-the-line bingo card, along with (laughs) absolutely and things that we always say. Yeah, and it was directed by Paul Annette. Um, Let me tell you about Paul Annette and his career prior to Secret Army, if I may. Please do, please do. So Paul Annette was another director whom Glacier had not yet worked with before. Um, He'd worked in the 60s on shows such as The Worker and Fraud Squad. And he'd also done the documentary about the making of the film The Battle of Britain, which was called The Battle for the Battle of Britain, catchy title there, in 69. And he directed Michael Culver's father, Roland, who was very well known at the time, um, in the series Mr. Pargeter. He'd also directed episodes of New Scotland Yard and Crown Court. Um, to fans of the horror genre, he directed the feature film The Beast Must Die. And he's quite an important figure for people who like that film. And it had Peter Cushing in it. In terms of BBC TV drama, He'd worked on the final series of Robert Barr's Spy Trap, Robert Barr being a scriptwriter for Secret Army later on. And he also worked on the first series of Poldark, which was huge, huge in 1975. And he worked on that with Kenneth Ives, who we who we who directed for the series as well. So they were they knew each other. And also it's worth noting that he directed a six-part adaptation of the classic novel Little Lord Fauntleroy in 1976. So that's Paul Annette. To keep doing like a, hmm, connections, connections, people who have seen Red Dwarf will probably already know, but might be worth mentioning for a few people who don't, that Chloe Annette, who played the second Kachansky, not the first, because that was Claire Grogan, yeah. is daughter of Paul. He was busy mates with no less than Babs Windsor. One of the struggles I had when I talked to him was that he wanted to talk about how much of a good friend he was to Babs Windsor. And I was like, can we get back to Secret Army now? And this was at um, the actor's restaurant, um, Joe Allen's in Covent Garden. So I'll always remember that day. Yeah, but his son directed EastEnders after he directed EastEnders. He directed EastEnders for years, including loads of big episodes. I don't know whether you watched EastEnders when it was like the New Year specials, when I think when Martine McCutcheon fell down the stairs and died. He directed that episode. And... Oh, wow. Yeah, they're like up there in history, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he direct. He was there as the sort of like the old guard director who would they'd bring in because he directed. He was a reliable pair of hands and he could direct the big moments. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting to make those um, connections. He um, yeah. sadly passed away in 2017. but He did. And, and aged 80 as well, he... Uh... Yeah. Lasted to a grand old age. Yes, he did. Um, also worth noting that he got very annoyed with me about my review of the episode um, Weekend in his in my book. <laughs> so when we get to Weekend, I've got a lovely anecdote about Paul Annette's fury with me. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I, uh, I'm intrigued to hear it. Was it what you said about it or was it... It was what I said about it and not accepting the rigours of production. Oh, okay. Uh, and the, the things that were put on you as a writer. Right. But, um, yeah, so it, 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 was, it was valid, but it's, it'll be quite fun to talk about it when we get that far. When your book was released, did you give out free copies to cast and crew? I did. And um, 
I even gave one to Michael Burrell, who played Schliemann in this episode, because he was such a lovely guy. And even though he's in one episode, he was so generous at this time. And he was just one of those people who really wanted this book to happen. And because he thought Secret Army was important, he'd enjoyed his role in the series. He thought it was significant. And he just kind of was very supportive. And I remember him emailing me to say, how are you getting on with the book? And I thought, you, you, people don't need to do that. No, that's lovely. Yeah, so it was lovely. So it's it's worth mentioning Michael Bur- Burrell as well. Um, in fact, this book, which I'm holding here, um, which is my version, the crappy version I'm using for the podcast, it says, to Michael, I got there in the end. Hope you enjoy it. All the best, Andy. And that was to Mike. It wasn't to Michael Culver. That was to Michael Burrell. And but I smudged it, so I I did it again. <laughs> so this is forever the the sludge the smudge Schliemann copy sludge smudge <laughs> Schliemann copy. There you go. Facts. Yeah, there we go. Again, uh, as I've said before, and we can add this to the bingo as well. Loving all these small details. Speaking of details. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the locations that were used for filming in this episode? Yes, we ought. So. The scene which we had last time, Sergeant on the Run, the scene when the sergeant walked around and saw the statues and the different foliage arches, um, just down from that, you can almost see the statue's foot in one of the scenes here, is where Curtis meets um, the contact uh, near the start of Registers with Butter. So they use the same location, which is the Place de Petit Sablon. For the interior of the flat where the Schliemanns are, are existing, that was a, a small, dirty flat in Ealing. And Jan Francis, when I talked to her, she still remembered the smell of that flat. So um, it's funny how things stay with you. But she specifically mentioned that of all the things she recorded for Secret Army. Um, and I think it's also worth mentioning that although it's not actually a location, because Kessler does make reference to the fact that the, they're at Gestapo headquarters and he asks Brandt, why did you choose this building to be the to the headquarters. It was real information there about why the Germans chose it. And it was because it was a place from where they could pounce quickly, both into the center of the city, but also in the suburbs. It was between the two. One day, Marisa and I walked all the way from the center of Brussels to the Avenue Louise headquarters, just so we could look at it. It was a really long way. And we're like, this is insane. Why are we doing this? But then we got there. It did look how we expected. And it did have Amazingly, it had the marks in the walls where it was attacked by Baron de Sely Longchamp, which comes from the episode um, Day of Wrath, which we'll get to later on. But it's still... Or rather, the episode is based on the actual events. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, AJ. That's an important thing to say. I'm that annoying Um, friend. No, no, you're that good friend. I think you're fine. It reminds me that Secret Army's not real life. This episode was first broadcast on the 21st of September, 1977. Was that a Wednesday, Andy? Yes, Wednesdays all the way in 1977. Whilst we had a lot to enjoy in Sergeant on the Run, that we we did have some, you know, constructive criticism to discuss. This is a very different episode, isn't it, from the last? So tell me what you think of Radishes with Butter. Okay, so I think it's a much more balanced episode. I think... Episode one is trying too hard to be episode one. <laughs> and episode two is a bit of a Victor's Retellus flight of fancy. And yes, it's got a good central storyline with the sergeant, but the regulars are kind of like an afterthought in that episode a little bit. 
So here you finally feel like, okay, this is the series. I understand what's happening here. And I'm starting to get to know the characters better. And it fills in a lot of important blanks, I think. So it feels like the first solid episode to me. It's still not quite firing on all cylinders from my perspective, but it's getting there. Yeah, I would um, I would agree with those thoughts. I, In general, I struggled a bit at the start of the episode just because there was a lot of names dropped. People were referring to a lot of other people <laughs> in conversations and I was like, I'm not sure who these people are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then I'm also not as good as picking up straight away conversations where they have threats and suggestions rather than people directly saying what the thing is if that makes sense so like when someone you know the scene between Kessler and Brandt where it's like well it would be a shame if I had to and I'm like oh you're suggesting something but I'm not you know I'm like missing the plot a bit because I'm slow I guess I see no you're not slow it's just maybe you're not used to his methods yet <laughs> yeah yeah or um or I find direct communication more helpful. I don't know. So that's when I'm sat there with your book being like, okay, that's what he's saying. That's what he wants Brandt to do in this situation. Got it. Oh, I see, yeah. Yeah. There's a, but this is a particularly um, good example of obtuse, not obtuse, abstruse, obtuse. I don't know what the word is. It's a particularly good example of people not saying things, but meaning things. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yes. Yeah. 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 People are not being clear in their intentions and motivations when they're saying things, but they're... they're but they're implied, them. yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I was sat there, you know, with my, like, <laughs> concentrated face being like, always implying something. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me a while to get there. Um, but once we kind of got into the swing of the episodes, I found it really tense and thrilling, and I felt like it really laid the foundation for storylines to come. There was so much happening, I had pages of notes, and yeah, just found it a really great episode overall, with a lot of different contrasts, complex storylines, and ethical dilemmas. But then just to add to that, it did feel like, along with Sergeant in the Run, in the run? <laughs> Sergeant on the Run, it maybe belonged a bit later in the series, because yeah, like you said, we've got the first episode, the second one, which is a bit out there, or feels like it belongs later in season one, yeah. and then you're suddenly in with a a really complex episode that's dealing with some big themes and you know big historical subject matter and you're probably at this point still wondering who Natalie is yeah. <laughs> yes definitely and of course if for regular listeners to the podcast they'll know that we've decided that Sergeant on the Run is contemporaneous to events yes. <laughs> around this time so <laughs> I still love that it totally makes sense for me but yes and for me um, I'd also like to mention a few things that I found were interesting, not necessarily good, but I hadn't noticed them before. It's amazing how you can see an episode so many times and not see the wood for the trees. Um, Gaston, Gaston um, being Lisa's uncle, is working all hours, but not just for Lifeline. He seems to be working for different resistance groups. Yeah, and it felt like there was many, not even just two. <laughs> no, exactly, because he's, he's helping the Jews with the cards... But, yeah, the implication is he's, he's got his fingers in lots of different pies. And Lisa knows this. They must have had a conversation at some point where she's like, well, this isn't OK, because you could you could portray all of these different lines. So it's a bit of a security hazard, I think. Yeah. And I think now as we go through our episode by episode rewatch, when we get to an episode. Junior home. Junior yes. Home. Yeah. When we get to that episode, it's going to be more impactful for me, I think, because 
the first time I watched it, I didn't get that he would have that knowledge of so many different resistance groups. Whereas now I'd be much more worried, you know, that he's been captured. Yeah, but I don't think they refer to these clearly enough because it's quite oblique here and I was suddenly like this is the first time I've noticed oh my god he doesn't just work for Lifeline this is significant Mm. and what a trooper what a what a hero that he's doing all of that work yeah and also it was so nice to see that Louise isn't stupid she actually knows what's going on because the Mm. implication earlier in the series is that she's like oh why must you do this and why and she keeps seeming to ask why all the time but the reality is she does know She's kind of lying to herself, yeah, consciously or subconsciously, but she actually now understands what's going on around her, and she's not stupid. No, no. And, and one thing this episode does really well is it builds on all of the characters in, in a really good way, and yeah, you get that for her development too. Yeah. And that conversation where she's trying to convince Gaston to take a holiday, <laughs> like the first time I watched this show, I was taking it at face value, but, but you're right, of course she's not trying to convince Gaston to go on holiday. <laughs> no. But she's she's, she's trying, trying to, to communicate. Yeah, work. exactly. Yeah. She's yeah. communicating that to him and, and but doing it in a way that she's still pretending to the others that she doesn't know but she does know and then but she's trying to say, you know, take a step back from this work. I don't want to lose you too kind of thing. Yeah. I was trying not to find amusing the fact that um at the end of the episode Kessler opens a file on Brandt. Because my feeling is that Kessler's the sort of person who goes through life and everyone he meets, he's like, I'm just going to open a file on you. And I just, I know, it, I know it's kind of not funny because he's a Nazi, but it's just the idea of someone going through life and always, like, you know, having information on everyone and everyone's automatically an enemy because he's Gestapo. And yeah, it was just, um, it kind of amused me, although it shouldn't. I guess it speaks to that petty side of his character, isn't it? It's like, well, I'm yes. annoyed with you. Well, I'm going to ring up and start a file. Yeah. And his retaliation is bureaucratic. Is that the right word? But yes. Like, it's it's paperwork. But, it's official. Yes, it's... but it reminds me, like, because I worked at Oxford and Cambridge University, and it reminds me of the people who were my enemies were people who would be bureaucratic and put things in my way because I was an agent of change, and I hated being there for all the years I worked there because I'm not... I don't work within hierarchies very well and within bureaucracy. And they were the sort of people that say, well, I need you to fill in this pink flimsy and put it in this letterbox and all this stuff. And I'd be like, no, sod off. But, um, but the, the fear, the, the, the horrible thing about the Nazis is they were bureaucratic and that was part of their power. Mm. So you couldn't ignore their bureaucracy and you couldn't ignore this detail because, you know, this was something that was going to see you you know, whatever happened to you, yeah. And there's that chilling aspect of that efficiency, isn't there? Yeah, yes, yeah. That yeah. such evil can happen in such orderly yeah. ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was annoyed with how Lisa was referred to as a child several times. I don't know whether it's a word, but I, I put down in my notes, the childing of Lisa is annoying me. So Albert says, you are at risk, child, and... And holds her shoulders at the same time to make her more diminutive to him. Didn't like that. And also Louise is saying, child, you know, you, she's not a child. I mean, how old is she? Early 20s? I think, I feel like all of the female characters in this show appear older than they're meant to be. Because I would have, like, yes. aged Natalie at, say, 25, but she's supposed to be a bit younger, isn't she? I think she's meant to be about 19 or something, yeah. yeah. Well, she's supposed to still be at university, I guess. And same with... Yeah. Um, Lisa, I'm thinking yeah. she's like yeah. that kind of age, and then this this mm-hmm. this kind of dialogue is implying that maybe she's a bit younger. But also, I must mention this is the first time we hear singing. 
in Sipanami, the singing is an important element of the series. And here we hear two songs that Angela Richards will herself sing as Monique in the Condide later in the in the run in series two. Um, one being J'attendrai and the other one being Ein Malverst de Vida Beimersein. So, <laughs> say that after a few drinks. Good, good pronunciation there. I'm impressed. <laughs> well, you know my pronunciation is usually off, so... <laughs> Can I tell you a bit about those two songs? Yes, I would love to hear more. Please tell me more. Okay. So, Jaton Dre is, um, translates as I Will Wait, and it was originally a poem by Louis Potra, which was set to music by the Italian composer Dino Oliveri. And at that point, it was retitled Torn Eye, which I get confused about because that's also a Eurovision song and that's a completely different podcast. Anyway... <laughs> Monique first sings the song in The Hostage at the start of series two. And interestingly, it was in the zeitgeist in 76-77 because there was a disco version in 1976 by the singer Dalida. And it was also prominently in the in the film Das Boot in 1981. But um, yeah, Jean Andre. And it was a song that Angela loves to sing. It was one of her favourites. Yeah. Did she... Uh, delve into re- any reason why was it odd she just said oh I love singing that song I think it's because it was a French song so she liked the fact that it was had that sort of um, French Parisian cabaret air that um, was a part of the role of Monique the character of Monique as it developed she became this sort of Parisian um, chanteuse and it sort of played into all of that feel which yeah, I'm just going to say something else about that if I can just find well, a bit. Well, whilst you search for yeah. it, I'm going to put you on the spot and say, you know the name of the film where she played another Belgian singer? Oh, God, no, I don't. <laughs> Tell me. Um, she is in the film Across the Lake, starring Anthony Hopkins. Oh, that song with Anthony Hopkins, yes. Yes, and play, he plays gentleman Donald Campbell, who tried to break the speed record up in Cumbria, so very well known in... Um, my part of the world where I'm from. But she plays his wife, who was a singer, and so therefore she sings in French in that movie. Ah, she would have loved that. Yeah. So she plays two two Belgian singers in the course of her career. In my book, when I talk about the description of Monique in the writer's Bible, it said that she has something of the young signoret of the young signorette about her. And that's a reference to Simone Signorette, who was born in the twenties, she was a French Jew who became an Academy Awarding actress. And during the occupation, she hung out with a group of bohemian writers and actors who met at the Café de Flore in the Saint-Germain-de-Prés, quarter of Paris. So there was that sort of feel that they were trying to get with Monique the more it developed of this Simone Signoret. So yeah, I think that was something that, that Angela liked to play into. So the other song is I'm a verse de Vida by Mazine, um, which means once again, you will be with me. This was written by the rather wonderfully named Willie Collo and originally sung by Karl Radatz in the 1939 German film, oh here we go, Wir tanzen um die Welt, We Are Dancing Around the World, um, which is a musical about a troupe of dancers. And the recording that we hear here, we also hear again um, in the series. So we hear this recording several times and... It's not performed in the series, though, by Monique until Little Old Lady in series two. But yeah. I'm a vast Davida by my side. La da 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 da. Anyway, 
But both of, the, both of those songs, Angela sang at the Condide evening. You're listening to Down the Line, a Secret Army podcast. To link it back to um, something we've touched upon already about how this episode builds upon characters really well and develops them further, I feel like we've got a, we both have a lot to say about Curtis in terms of good character development and unfortunate character development. Boy, do we. But um, I think before we get on to that, I would just like to play Ryan's reaction to the episode because I think he may say it best. Oh, okay. okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I'm going to play that in now. Okay, so Ryan and I have just watched Radishes with Butter. What did you make of it? I don't know if we're supposed to like Curtis or not, but I don't like him. Why don't you like him? Because he's got a hero complex. Tell me more. So he, he feels like he has to come in and save everything. So he, he's too attached to individuals and he's not thinking bigger picture and mm. it's like potentially sacrificing everything for the sake of showing off that he can do something for one person or one group of people. But isn't it compassion rather than showing off? Well, no, because if the whole line gets compromised, then that's it. Right. So, like... So he's got to be more expedient and sensible in his actions? Yeah, and he's just like, oh, here's all this money, aren't I doing great? And then, oh, I can save anybody I think I should be able to save. Right. And I was like, well, no, you can't, because these things aren't cut and dry like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. And, but am I supposed to like him? You're not going to tell me, are you? No. I just don't like him. And then <laughs> <laughs> and then the whole thing with Yvette about, like, the, the stuff on the roof just comes across as, like, insensitive. And then he's like... How do you mean insensitive? Well... Near-death experiences, you don't then munch on someone's face that <laughs> excessively. Yeah, it felt like a bit of a and, and taking an opportunity, didn't it? We, that, and also, like, when is that going to be a good time? Like, it's not. No. And then him confessing his undying love for her, and she's like, come on now. It just seems a lot. It just seems like a jerk. Okay. Until the next time. Thanks, Ryan. So the first part of Ryan's reaction to this episode was about Curtis. And I think he, he nailed it, didn't he? Yeah, loved it. Uh, and I, I loved the way he explained it um, as well. Um, I totally agree with what he said about him having a bit of a hero complex. I um, phrased it in a slightly different way. I described it as a do-gooder effect, which is when you really want to help someone, you fall into um, over-promising, uh, which is what Curtis did. He's like, you know, don't worry, I'll you know come back and get help. and. Uh, yeah, yeah, like Ryan said, with the money, um, you maybe don't understand the full situation. You're making it worse by helping. He's got their hopes up and, you know, couldn't help them ultimately. And and also part of that do-gooder effect is that you subconsciously get to feel safe and enjoy having more and get the feeling of being the good guy in that, which I think Curtis uh, is, is experiences. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. you know, he gets to feel good about giving, you know, he's he's not in that same position at all and he's just he's just so oblivious to it isn't he in his naivety totally totally and and also in his male privilege in his white male privilege it's a huge part of it that he he just thinks he can just yeah go through everything and it'll all work out it's like well no but then the, the flip side of that is that you do get that character exploration that he does care that he is moved that he wants to help 
So you can put that in his good good trait column. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a small list in that good trait column. But I do like the fact that at least he recognises that to maintain the pride of the Schliemans that he has to take food from Yeah, them. yeah. And Lisa refuses because she's being all prim and proper. And it's like, no, oh, I didn't want to. And it's like, no, but the act of taking food from someone is actually a hugely important thing. This is something I learned quite late in life, that when people offer me food, that I should say yes, because that's a contract and it's kind of a, um, it's an acceptance. Um, it's something that's quite important about trust and respect. Mm. And... Maybe it's one thing that Secret Army taught me, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's quite a foundation of, of building connections, isn't it? Is yeah, the offering absolutely. and the accepting. Yeah, On absolutely. As part of that do-gooder effect, he's like, he's very problematic in the way that he is acting like he's the only one who cares. He's like having a go at the others, at the characters, isn't he? Don't you care? Yeah. Are you going to do anything? And, and again, it just shows he doesn't understand. Yeah. How, how dare he assume that they don't care kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. When they're risking their lives every day. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, it can appear heartless that they're drawing those lines between who they will and won't help or who they can and can't help. But there's reasons behind it. It's not just like, we don't care about this group of people. We're only going to help that group of people. Yeah. There's reasonings yeah. behind it in terms of the safety of the line and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Despite Gaston playing all the lines. Yeah, <laughs> but despite Gaston being the true hero of the series, which we yeah. didn't realise. And then I think our main complaint, though, about Curtis, speaking yeah. of male privilege. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> Cannot believe his conversation with Lisa in the Candide. I don't know why I didn't pick up on this as much in my first rewatch, but I, I was absolutely beside myself in anger um, this time watching it Lisa's yeah. just there saying her parents died her fiance who she loved died and he's just like oh well if you won't get with me then <laughs> it's like oh my god Curtis shut up the, shut up like your feelings are irrelevant he didn't, yeah, it's not about you this he didn't even say I'm really sorry to hear that your whole family and your fiance died you must be devastated. What can I do to support you during this difficult time? Yeah. Instead, it's just like... But these are my feelings. Yeah. Oh, my God. So in that sense, yeah, he's really... Yeah. I'm really struggling to like him as a main character at this point. Yeah. And it's interesting because I don't think he necessarily is the main character or, or a main character. They can't decide for themselves. And I think that's what I find interesting about series one is they can't actually decide if the main character is Albert... Lisa or Curtis? So I wore my T-shirt, which says you're too good for him again today, ah. um, because actually it was very relevant. So I was like, yes, I'll feel that with uh, yeah. for Lisa in that conversation with Curtis. Totally. And again, echoing what Ryan said, you know, after a near-death experience as well. And just the way that he just launches at her face, like he's an octopus coming to suck out her soul like well, a Dementor's kiss yeah, well apparently according to Jan Francis it was a Dementor's kiss <laughs> um, there was there was a certain amount of tonsil licking that went on <laughs> and she was like this isn't great no. and it's like really properly tongue down her throat and she was not she wasn't enjoying it no um, and if Jerry Glaster famously called out during during filming we didn't kiss like that during the war <laughs> So, yes. Um, and again, at that point, they're not necessarily in a place of safety. They're still upon they the are, ring. They're literally just next to the edge. And yeah, yeah, it's it's taking advantage. It's wrong. It's putting us, himself on her. And it's just, 
Oh. Yeah. And I'll say this a few times in the series. Consent needs to be positive and it needs to be active. <laughs> and you can't just start kissing people <laughs> when they don't want you to, <coughs> Major Bradley. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Why, why did they go back to the Candide? It's a really good question. And I saw this in your notes and I thought, jolly good question, AJ. I have no idea because there's no reason for them to get um, Albert up at three in the morning. Yeah, because at first I was like, oh, typical Albert being grumpy that he's got to get them free. And then actually I was like, no, why, why are they there at three in the morning? Poor mm. guy. He's up in the night looking after um, his wife enough as it is. Give the man some sleep. Yeah, and if he's not with her, he could be with Monique. Yeah, he's got a so, lot of people to look after at night and he doesn't need any more. <laughs> he doesn't need any more. And of course the answer is budget and it's the Condide yeah. set. The reality would be she wouldn't probably want to wake up her aunt Louise and um, Uncle Gaston. So they probably would have gone back to Curtis's flat. But then she wouldn't want to go there because you know what he's like. She's right. gonna, he's going to jump on her. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's why. There, we've just worked out why. Yeah, for her own personal safety. Yes, exactly. Which is actually quite a sad realization. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I'm just going to say it one more time. I just, if someone is telling you that their family has died, don't <laughs> try and hit on them. I'll be hurt that they don't reciprocate your feelings. There we go. So, um, just while we're talking about the roof scene. Yes. Um... Yeah. Tell me more about that. In your book. There was some lovely information about how it was filmed, but also some lovely production design sketches, which I would love to touch upon. Yes, the Austin Ruddy, who designed the Condide set, he also sent on some wonderful pictures of how they'd achieved the front axial projection. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Thank you so much for sending me this. So you can see them jumping across the rooftops and you also get a lovely view of the, the plate, which was taken at the back which was the, the, the image that was being projected. But um, I assume you want to know how frontaxial projection works. Yes. In the detail of someone who is an expert in this field. So, in essence, frontaxial projection was a version of back projection for which a picture on film, known as a plate, was projected from beneath the camera through a half-silvered mirror at the same axis as the camera lens onto a beaded screen. Are you getting all of this? The screen would reflect light only in the direction from which it had come back into the camera. No, while any light falling from the lights above the film stage onto the screen would be reflected back and therefore not diminish the clarity of the pictures on the screen. So I remember writing that down very carefully because I didn't <laughs> understand it. But I kind of get the idea vaguely, but um, it's clever stuff is what it is. And they used it. Yeah, and it looks good. I, I, didn't, I didn't watch that and think, oh, they're not. On a real rooftop. Yeah. And I think it's also good because they filmed at Ealing, the rooftop set, and they actually built it all at Ealing, and it was an expensive set. And then behind the scenes, you get to see Paul Annette with a model version of the rooftop set talking about um, how it was going to work. The stunt person was Veronica Griffith, and she stood in for Jan Francis on the rooftop sequences. There was... Several times during this book when I was at a meal with someone and they told me a story that would be wonderful to go in the book and then I talked to the other person who it concerned and they said, no, it's not true. So <laughs> Paul Annette said that, I can share this story now because Paul Annette is no longer with us, but Paul Annette was convinced that Jan Francis fell from the Ealing soundstage and really hurt herself or 
Veronica Griffith fell from the roof and really hurt herself. One of the two, I don't remember which. And had to go to hospital, so the whole shoot was suspended. And only Christopher Neem was there, etc. But Jan Francis said, absolutely not true. Neither her nor the stunt person were um, harmed. And he was exaggerating for dramatic effect. And that he was prone to such <laughs> to such exaggerations. <laughs> she implied that last bit, I should say. So, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and also that it... It was a long time ago at the time of writing the book and even more so now. And yeah, yeah, in finding out about the show, we're asking people to recall things when they've worked on dozens of shows and productions since. So it's no. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And I think there's a temptation to make stuff up to make things better as well. Mm. To tell more of a story. We've all been at Doctor Who conventions where we've heard stories and we think, well, actually, I don't think <laughs> that's true, but we'll go along with it. Uh, weird snogging aside on the rooftop, I did find the whole, you know, it, it was nice to see some kind of consequences in that they're not just going about their activities and no one's noticing. It was really nice to see them caught in it, you know, like, crap, we've got to get off. The mm. roof's the only way out. We've got to go, you know, our lives depend on it kind of thing. And it was exciting. I enjoyed watching. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I really enjoyed Lifeline's decision-making in this episode. We have faulted them in part, <laughs> and I will fault them again uh, before we get on to the more serious parts of this discussion, but they had Curtis followed, didn't they, in this episode? They did. And um, I thought, oh, yeah, that's that's good. They, they, you know, showing us some brains there. They're not... Mm completely rubbish with their code about cabbages on the phone <laughs> exactly they, they showed improvement what did you think of the different characters some trusting some not trusting curtis i thought it was quite interesting to see who felt like they trusted him and who didn't and who wanted to shoot him and who didn't yeah i mean i just love the fact that monique is purely instinctive and or at least she thinks she's purely instinctive i think she's actually gathering lots of bits of information and is making good decisions which is what she does when she runs the line later on and yeah, but she's a woman andy so it's instinct <laughs> women don't use their brains exactly that's what I, that's that's what i was gonna say it's kind of sorry i jumped your point yeah no but that's right the, the, that's the suggestion that she's just more instinctual but in fact she's maybe made to think that she's just been instinctive because she says, oh, well, I've trusted him all along, whatever, you know, whatever, you know, right or wrong. But the reality is, no, she's a good judge. She, she can put it together and work out the deal. So, yeah, um, it's not about women's intuition. Jeez. It's <laughs> just that she's a really good judge of character and she knows the deal. Yeah. Um, some might be tempted after Curtis's uh, conversation with Lisa to be like, go on, Albert, shoot him. Shoot him. <laughs> well, Albert actually offers to get rid of him and he's like, go on, go on, go on, can I, can I, can I? And it's just really quite funny that he's desperate to kill him. Yeah. And I think it's just because he annoys him just as much as anything. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, you, get the, you get the idea that Albert actually quite likes the idea of a bit of a dispatch, a bit of a kill. Because, you know, maybe it's... <laughs> I'd never thought of that, but yeah, you're I think not... It's a bit, you're, I don't think you're entirely wrong. Yeah, I think it's a bit cathartic for him, the idea of it. Go on. Go on, let me just stab him a little. <laughs> it's like, okay, wow. But maybe this is how he copes with um, with his home life situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that I've given Lifeline some praise, I'm going to take it away again. Wow. Um, so I had some questions on the show notes, which was, do customers at the candy just sit and listen to the arguments in the back room about what's happening and what to do? We need to kill him, he knows too much. And then there's someone just drinking going, <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I did a facial expression there, which is not helpful no, for the was, podcast. But to describe it, it was like a customer looking a bit alarmed and panicked <laughs> yes. and pretending to drink a beer was my uh, thing that I did for Andy's benefit only there. Yeah. But, and then my second question was, do German soldiers just sit in the Candide and listen to Curtis and Lisa argue about events <laughs> to do with Lifeline and who to help and who not to help? They're on the next table, Andy. <laughs> yeah, but what I like to think, this is my... Um... What's it called? This is my headcanon on this. Yes, yes. That a lot of the Germans are kind of like, oh God, I've just heard about this thing, but there's so much (laughs) shit I'm hearing about and I just want to have my beer. Otherwise I'm going to have to file a report and I'm going to have to go back to headquarters and it's quite a long walk from here. So I'm actually just going to stay and have me soup on my beer. And I think that might be going on a bit that they just let things go. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think you're wrong there either. Um, I know sometimes that did happen where like, a German soldier might have heard someone listening to the BBC, which either, depending on where you are in the war, was a long imprisonment or punishment by death, and then sometimes would just say to people on the way out, yeah, you might want to be a bit more careful about what you're listening to. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, yeah, so yeah, you're probably right there. But still, you can't rely on that. No, you can't. You can't. <laughs> and this head of Lifeline, I know she knows better because she had enough smarts about her to get Curtis followed. So come on, Lisa, get consistent. Yeah. Do we, we haven't really talked about Kessler and Brandt's scene. We've talked about my confusion surrounding it, but do we want to talk in a bit more detail about their, yeah. their wonderful scene? What great actors having a great scene. <laughs> yeah, beautifully played by Clifford Rose and Michael Culver. Ryan was saying how it's kind of like a game of chess, and it, and it really is. They're each trying to outdo each other. They both have knowledge. They both have systems, techniques, of ways of, of trying to work the system and prove that they knew better. And... And through the the banker's notes and all of that side stuff going on, they proved that they're a match for each other. And of course, the ultimate um, result of this is that he opens a file on him as he has, you know, as he as he does. Um, but the the scene I really loved was him trying to, you know, basically of showing him the, the the proper coffee and the and the English biscuit, the bourbon biscuit, which it clearly is, and saying, you know, um, oh, yes, I've got this real coffee and I've got this biscuit. And Brandt is meant to be impressed. He's refusing to be impressed. And Kessler's, like, definitely, yeah, annoyed, but he also, it's a power move. It's a massive power move. And I was, initially, I thought... Oh, it's hilarious that the coffee pot's branded with Nazi regalia, but then I thought, it's not funny at all. That was the success of the Nazis, that they were so good at branding, that they actually, I mean, their uniforms were, the SS uniforms were designed by a famous designer, weren't they? Yeah, I want to say Hugo Boss, but I might be wrong. But they knew what they were doing in terms of the, the costumes they were wearing. They were costumes. They were intended to inspire fear. And there was a branding to everything that they had. The badges, mm. the regalia, and the coffee pot. And it's it's a terrifying thing that they were so deliberate in their branding and in, in their mm. inspiration of fear. And the coffee pot is just a small part of that. But Yeah. Um, yeah just... And to show that, you know, you're so at home in these, in these occupied countries that you're just going to put your feet under the table and have everything branded that yeah yeah. it it shows it's a statement of intent isn't it that we we plan to be here forever we're not going anywhere what you're going to do about it exactly a few minor points we've briefly touched upon it already but i thought it was a nice example of this episode showing the found family aspect Mm. even if we didn't like how it was phrased we have albert saying that for lee basically everyone just thinks lisa's their daughter isn't it is the summary (laughs) that was good foreshadowing 
that so many people were saying she's like a daughter to them. You know, it's not going to look good for a character when everyone tells them how much they mean to them. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Their, their fate is sealed. But um, I did think that Jan Francis was particularly good at the scene at the table at the Condide at three in the morning when she was explaining her relationship with Peter before Curtis was terrible to her. And the way it is, particularly the line, he was all life to me. I just mm-hmm. loved the way she, she gave that line and there was such an extreme close-up on her. And I thought that was a really affecting and well-directed moment that you really felt how much it, she hurt and it was quite theatrical. It was kind of like a stage play moment in a way, but it, it, I thought it worked really well and that Jan did a good job there. Yeah, let's play it in. His name was Peter. There'd never been anyone else. Not at all, you, you understand. I loved him very much. I loved everything about him. He was all life to me, he was laughter. Happiness, hope. He had all the trust I could ever give to anyone. We... We just loved each other. Then the war came. He was a reservist and got sent to the border immediately. But before he went, we had two days together. Two days. So now we would like to come to the way the, the final solution, the deportation of the Jews, the Holocaust, was portrayed through Secret Army, through this, sadly, one solitary episode. But maybe it did need to be one single episode. It, it's such an, an important story. Um, certainly when they were producing the series, they were aware that this was just one story that had this heavy burden on its shoulders to tell this story through these three um, Jews who made up this family who were yeah, ultimately deported in the story the Schliemans and yeah it's, it, it's, the question I guess is is it enough? does it do it justice? Um, how is it to have this massive um, part of the war presented only through these scenes in this episode? And they're such good questions, and I, I, I don't mean to kind of cop, at, cop out of them, but I almost feel like I can't answer them. Like, ideally, it would be covered more, but then also, um, how, how can you cover such vast historical event that covers so many countries, so many lives, yeah. in a series that is ultimately focusing on an escape line uh, that focuses on airmen? Yeah. And, yeah. It's finding that balance, isn't it, through all of the historical events that happen Yeah, yeah. that they cover in the show. And I remember when I researched for the book about the deportation of Jews from Belgium, it just shows how time has changed, actually, that I could find very little information. I was actually digging in libraries to find information about the deportation of Jews from, from Belgium, and I managed to get figures of how many people were um, deported, um, i.e. sent to death camps, um, and who was responsible for that, how it was done, just because I like to write these historical background elements to each episode in the book. Um, And it was really hard to find that information. Now, I looked again last week, so much information out there, as it should be. Yeah. And it was so so good to see that it was there. I mean, horrific detail, obviously, horrific information. But, um, of course, these stories must never be forgotten and they they should be shared in this way on the internet. That's one thing that the internet is amazing for. Yeah, yeah. But... um, but I felt that my section in the book was quite small, but 
maybe in keeping with how much the Jewish story is there in Secret Army, I don't know. I think um, it was a great decision to focus on one family because it shows the audience the personal impact. Nothing's got lost by looking at the sheer amount of people who were killed. You really get that personal impact for that family. And um, I thought it portrayed that really well. You can see their living conditions. You can see they don't have enough food, enough clothes. They don't, you know, they don't have company. Curtis might be the only person or yeah. one of a few people coming to see them. They can't leave yeah. that flat, can they? No. And they always have their bags packed and ready to go. I thought, I just thought they showed showed the impact of um, anti-Semitism really well. Yeah, and that's not just during the Second World War. It's like the pogroms. It's all the things that have happened for years and years. Anti-Semitism, yeah. and it still exists. Yeah. And the fact that they're always ready to leave, and yeah, it's 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 heartbreaking. It's affecting. It's very real. But I think it was done in a way that wasn't. It was. It was. I think it was done in a in a careful and considered way. Mm. Um, and yeah, as you said, a good decision just to focus on one family. But Michael Bur- Burrell, who played Schliemann, he had such a heavy load on his shoulders, particularly as apparently Paul Annette said to him, "How do you feel about standing in for six million people?" Which was kind of, wow, that's a bit of a tough question to ask him, you know, that he had that responsibility, but he felt that it was it was done well. Shall I just share a few of his words? Yeah, please do. Yeah. Um, so before we get to his, his views on playing Schliemann, um, he did tell me how he got the part, and it was his agent, June Epstein, who was also Jewish. Um, I don't think he was, actually. Let me just get that right. No, I don't think he was. I think you're no. right in that. Yeah. So Michael Burrell wasn't Jewish himself, but his agent was, June Epstein. And when he was put forward for the part by June, um, she was asked if he was Jewish. And he said no. But the BBC said, well, there are lots of Jewish actors, so it'd be better if... And June was like, no, trust me, I'm the daughter of a rabbi. Michael can play it. And then they saw Michael, and this is what he said... I did the test in full costume and makeup at the TV centre in Wood Lane. And while we were doing it, Paul Annette said, if you play it, you'll be standing in for six million people. And of the performance, he said, you can't do that sort of thing without being moved. Everything was thoughtfully done to create an accurate sense as far as we could of what reality had been like. So it was certainly a highlight of his acting career. Um, Bizarrely, the other highlight of his acting career is playing the German Rudolf Hess. In um, it's a it's a one man film called Hess in which he plays Rudolf Hess, so um, yeah, absolutely different side of the coin, mm. but um, an important role for him. And yeah, he felt it was it was done well. Mm. It's I, I don't want to criticise it for the wife and the daughter not speaking, because and normally I would I would, but I think it works well to show you know their exhaustion, their hunger. Yeah. It's it's really harrowing that they don't speak. Yes, it feels very deliberate and it feels very real, actually. It's kind of they're beyond. They've lost everything. They've got a few bags. And what is there to say in this moment other than I'm hungry? Are we going to live? What's going to happen? Where are all my friends? What is the future? Just awful. And And the reality of the situation is that of the Jews who were deported from Brussels... Um, most of them died in Auschwitz, so 
you know the worst you can imagine um so yeah that was the that was the end of of that line and yeah lots of lots of belgian jews did escape but um they'd got out earlier yeah i think um it was interesting for me to reflect upon with any story that's looking at a minority group you it's interesting to look at whose pain is focused on and who gets the attention of the narrative yeah and i found it interesting that you you don't get time with the family talking amongst themselves but you do get time with the people who are not affected by this anti-semitism by these deportation policies mm. you get curtis and lisa being like you know don't you care i'm troubled by this yeah you know i get to go and give them money kind <laughs> of thing and and so i just find that interesting in general that you'll often get the scenes focusing on the people who are not the minority group if that makes sense yes yeah talking about it yeah 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 yeah, yeah. like we're focusing on their troubles their concerns about how to help them yeah but they're not getting deported at the end of no, the day. So exactly. I find that in just an, it's just a point to for, to reflect on. Yeah. Um, in in how stories are told in general. Yeah. Totally. An interesting point about um, the character of Kessler, because Kessler, it's made clear that he never had an issue with Jews per se. He wasn't. He wasn't particularly anti-Semitic is the line that Kessler himself says but of course by just being a Nazi or anti-Semitic being part of the final solution and agreeing to the deportations of course um, horrific completely unconscionable so I just think it's it's interesting that they didn't choose to make him directly sort of like I hate the Jews which would have been an easy thing to do the stereotypical Nazi thing but they chose not to do that perhaps to give give this idea that Kessler could say that he wasn't particularly anti-Jewish when of course he is by very nature of who he is and the Third Reich and everything. But I'm, I'm just intrigued by that, that angle. Mm. Do you feel like it was made obvious enough as to what he was doing? Because I think by the time I got to the end of Secret Army in the last series, I maybe lost sight of how much involvement he had in, in the Holocaust. I don't think it's referred to enough or... Um, particularly, I mean, Kessler, you get a bit more in the in the spin-off, where he's he's actually pushed on this by um, the character Mikhail Rock, who is the um, Israeli freedom fighter, and he's like, oh, I never had a problem with the Jews. Other people did, but no, by by nature of who he is and what he stood for, he absolutely did. And one of the one of the real life people who Kessler was based on, Ernst Ellers, was one of their head honchos in Brussels who was responsible for all these deportations so there's definitely an element whereby he was deliberately being transposed with that character as someone who was responsible but yeah it's it's maybe gets missing in action a bit just because there's only so much time that can be spent on this particular subject mm. but um one thing that I liked about this episode was that it it forced me as a viewer to confront my own morals and ethics that what would you do in that situation and also it just challenged me as an individual to be like do I know enough about the holocaust should I go and read more yeah and for me personally the answer was no I, I, I didn't feel like I did so I I did go and and through reading your book and the paragraphs you wrote on that I then went and read you know more about different events in different countries mm. how the holocaust played out in different countries across Europe so. yeah 
Um, mm. and, and then as well, I was shocked. I, I think there's some debate as to how much people knew in real life about what was happening and yes, and that people weren't just going to work and were actually going to be murdered and things like that. In the show, it seemed like everybody knew um, and, and had a yeah. casual knowledge of it. I think but, that was retrofitting. Yeah, but I imagine it, it, it would have still been, you know, you still had resistance networks getting people out and you still had people forging ration yeah. cards that were a different colour and so on and yeah. so forth. So yeah. it's not that people didn't know either. So, yeah. But it was interesting, again, to reflect upon that. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things that's difficult to know looking back, you know. But maybe also people didn't know the full horror of the final solution just because cause it's so unimaginable that that was a systematic extermination of a race. Mm. Just seems like, what? But then what's out of sight is out of mind. So, you know, the silence allowing this to happen and, yeah. And um, we could fill a hole. I don't know, ethics-based podcasts on, you know, like Lisa's decision to, like, is it the right thing to do to help someone or not? Uh, It's way beyond our scope, I think, as a... Yes, sure. Yeah. But but it's good that they did at least mention the Clarence line was was to help the Jews out of Belgium, so... um, And please do tell me more about this, because I think you did um, a a bit of research into... I did. Because I I was kind of asking, wasn't I, whether whether it was a real line or whether it was one the show had made up, Um, but I believe you know a bit more about that so it wasn't called the clarence line but i don't think it actually like had a name in if you look for information about it on the internet you'll find it's it's kind of collectively known as the dutch paris line but it's not like they went around saying oh are you part of the dutch paris line just like the comet line you know they did they call it comet all the time they probably didn't even name it i don't well it, it was named but they wouldn't have talked about it all the time so Roughly, though, the, the Dutch Paris line rescued Jews, Allied servicemen and labour draft evaders from the Nazis. And in Brussels, it was members of the Dutch expat community who um, were businessmen and students who created this. It was this really long name, the Committee for the Support of Dutch War Victims in Belgium. But they didn't just focus on the Dutch, they focused on others living there. And they were the ones who found hiding places for Jews and supported them with money, false documents and ration cards, all the things that Gaston did. But the line is kind of dissipated and diverse and it's like connected in different points, just like Lifeline. And part of the huge and important part of the line was in Lyon, where a Dutch expat named Jean Wiedner and his wife Elizabeth Cartier. And they personally took fugitives through the town of Annecy over the Swiss, Swiss border and they secured the Jews who they got over the border to remain in Switzerland as, as refugees. But the Dutch Paris line extended over time. It joined up the Belgian, Dutch and French chapters and operated throughout the war. So, so yeah, so there was a line that did this work. But, um, yeah, I don't think maybe it was as cut and dried as a, as a Jewish line like that was suggested. But certainly there were attempts to get the Jews out. To wrap things up, I would like to signpost listeners to some resources, if I may. So um, the Imperial War Museum in London has recently re- redone its World War II galleries and its Holocaust galleries. And so if you are able to travel there to um, visit that museum, I really recommend learning more about the Holocaust there. And also I would one reflection I've had about my own learning and not knowing enough about the Holocaust was I realised actually I don't 
there's a focus sometimes on the worst parts of history but actually maybe a lot of people myself included wrong wrongly didn't know enough about Judaism in general and so in Manchester there was a Jewish there is a Jewish museum which you can go and visit and learn more about Jewish culture and the history in Manchester and you can visit a synagogue and so I would encourage people to look in their own area to find out more that way or if you're ever in European cities there will probably be a, Jew, a Jewish museum to look at in there like Athens for example has one so and I thought that was a really good point you made in the notes. It made me stop and think, God, yes, it's so easy to become holo- Holocaust-centric. Yeah. Which, yeah, isn't the whole story. Yes, abomination. Yes, it affects how Jews live their day, lives their, live their daily lives now, of course, still. But, um, yes, exploring the rich history and, yeah, beyond all the persecution, which is a constant, sadly, but, yeah. A great exhibition has just opened at the Imperial War Museum uh, North. A great exhibition is opened, I think it's called Generations, and it is a series of portraits um, of people who survived the Holocaust, and it has their family members, so it will have their children, grandchildren, in some cases great-grandchildren, and it's an interesting reflection um, on that point, often it is Holocaust-focused, but now so much time has passed that you can see families that have descended from people who survived and there was something very moving and powerful in seeing those family portraits so again if people can check it out I advise going that that exhibition just tour I think it is moving from Manchester to London at some point so it may already be in London by the time this episode airs you are listening to down the line a secret army podcast Shall we move to our Twitter comments in response to the episode? Our wonderful, wonderful yeah. listeners who just come up with the most amazing points. So should we start with Alfred in WS? A haunting episode, the final image of the empty apartment with Curtis too late to save the Jewish family always gets me every time. Philip Doggett says Curtis's face when he realised what was what happened is really haunting and also points out that it was... Um, the nice touch about the hospitality and accepting the radishes. Mm-hmm. And we also had Alex Wilcock, who had quite a lot to say about Curtis. <laughs> Extremely tense for a Series 1 episode. This was way more packed into it than you'd expect. Very early in Secret Army, it confronts the worst horrors of Nazism. Themes about food, dignity and power explored. The way Kessler shows off with an exceedingly threatening bourbon cream. Bourbon. Bourbon cream, sorry. On the one hand, the banking's plot twist of forgeries that are too good entangles cleverly with the far worse evils of Nazi bureaucracy. That's what I was talking about. On the other, and even though there are stories are separate, I wince a bit that no one thought maybe we shouldn't do our storylines about Jews and banking plots in the same episode, which is a good point. Although the bankers in a shock twist are good here. When has that ever happened in any dramatic medium? Bankers are good. <laughs> yeah, and they're very, um, they work together very well in this episode, don't they? Like, they're very quickly able to flood the yeah. the real notes into the system to avoid anyone being tracked down. Yeah. Um, the big leading role for Curtis illustrates why he can't be the lead in this series. He thinks by turns that only he cares, that only he's a professional, that his every idea needs only to him to think of it to be done, that everyone else owes him their obedience, loyalty and love. And he's wrong on every count. Haughty, naive, and a dick, but still (laughs) trying to do the right thing. Um, Yeah, so thank you, Alex, for your excellent thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. And I did forget to kind of talk about this earlier, but it kind of links well uh, with Alex's tweets in a way. But yeah, the the contrast of that, you have like the scenes in the flat and the scenes in the office and someone's at the height of luxury 
with their crockery and their biscuits and other people you know it's just i just i guess wanted to make a point to say that contrast yeah the plate the plate with the radishes with butter yeah yeah yeah, that contrast was just really well shown always throughout the episode yeah anything else that you want to add here that you think we've forgotten to mention before i go into the closing words i just wanted to say my favorite lines of the week curtis say saying they are all going to go and even though Kirsten is a dick in this episode, at least he realises the import of what's going on and that no one will be left. Um, and I thought that was a haunting line. Mm. Also, I love Brant's retort to um, to Kessler, his burn. Thank you for the superb coffee and the English biscuit. I am impressed, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, so they were moments, lines I liked very much. Yeah, I chose some of Lisa's dialogue from the start of the episode when she's talking with the airmen. I just really liked, again, like how the women were portrayed. The guy's like, oh, thanks for risking your life for me. And she's like, I'm not doing it for you. (laughs) And just pointing it out. And I just really loved that, that the women have that kind of dialogue and can make those kind of points. And, and, And again, with like Monique, she doesn't do what Alba asks straight away, does she? Oh, she! I love how she just lingers there. She's like, I'm not going straight away. Sod it. Because Angela Richards is perfect and does every scene perfectly. <laughs> uh, she would have. She would have deliberately. She would have made that decision. Yeah, like, I love it. Totally, totally. So yeah, a difficult topic to discuss. A difficult storyline to discuss because of the import that it has, and the fact that it's only in one episode of the series. But we hope we did it justice. But um, we are silly podcasters after all, so, you know. Yeah, and ho- I, and yeah, I just really hope that people can see that we've just tried to divide the episode there between yeah. the, the more lighter points in the episode versus discussion about how it covers um, the Holocaust and deportation of the Jews and the like. So, yeah, like you say, I hope we, people feel like we've kind of done it justice and respectfully today. Okay. As always, as this episode draws to a close, you will hear some sound bites from other fans of Secret Army sharing what they love about the show and their memories of watching. If you would like to get involved in that, please do get in touch um, about that or about anything on the show at Secret Army Pod on Twitter or secretarmypod at gmail.com. We record in advance, but keep an eye out on Twitter for call-outs to share your views on each individual episode, like the people in this episode have done, like good old Alex... Alfred and Philip, <laughs> come on, ladies, get your in, get your views in. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you next time we go down the line when we take a look at episode episode four, Child's Play, which is not the one with the kid finding the soldier. I have been Andy, and I have been AJ. See you next time. Hello, I'm Maria, and I actually saw Secret Army from the beginning, mostly. Some of the time I was hiding because it was so bleak, but um, uh, I was 12 watching it and probably would be considered quite a naive 12-year-old by today's standards. Good guys wore white hats, bad guys wore black hats, and I didn't really understand the whole concept of grey at that point. Secret Army really helped with that. It was a very, very brave production in that they made it dark they made it bleak because war and resistance is and they weren't going to sugarcoat anything and I think that's um one of the things about the show is it was so realistic they they were very real people 
and a lot of them had to make quite dark, scary decisions, even the good guys. But this was being screened in the late 70s. And there are so many strong female characters in it, which was very unusual for the time. The other, the other thing I really love as a viewer is seeing people return, that you don't necessarily get one-off stories, you get somebody come back because their story isn't uh, finished. And I find that very satisfying as a viewer. So first season was released, I think November, 2003. Um, and I think pretty much as soon as that package hit the doormat, it didn't have very long between hitting the doormat and going to the video player or DVD player. And we pretty much watched it back to back. I said, we, we paused only to eat, sleep and go to the loo. We must have worked as well at some point. I, I have no recollection of going to work at all, but I do remember a very intense, we just watched them, binge watched them back to back just to get it all on board. And then having done that, we went back and watched it more slowly and it, it was almost like gobbling away because you're starving and then having consumed everything being able to go back and then eat it at a more leisurely pace you know, devour it at a more leisurely pace um, and it got several watchings the following april april 2004 season two came out and we'd have done the same thing you know um just shut the entire world out and just watch it and again season three um, we, we'd have done the same thing again. Thank you for listening to Down the Line. Andy and AJ will be back with another episode in two weeks' time. <laughs>